Well, I'm excited to start our new uh, sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. I was reading Luke this summer, and at the same time we were going through that Sunday evening DVD study uh, with Pastor David Platt, which was such a challenge and uh, such a great time together. I was struck anew and afresh with the powerful words of our Jesus. You know, Jesus' words are comforting, and Jesus' words are confrontational. Jesus' words are simple and clear, and yet they are bold and challenging. His words are piercing and powerful and gentle and wise. He was the greatest lover of mankind to ever walk the planet. His love reached down to the lowest of lowest sinner and to the heights of the self-righteous religious people. But his love had a purpose and a goal. It was to bring us to him so that we could not only have eternal life, but we could have a meaningful, significant, earthly life. I think it's time for us as a church and time for me as your pastor to spend some serious time in the words written in red. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. The term synoptic means seen together. It comes as a compound Greek word, sin meaning together, and optic meaning seen. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke include many of the same stories, often in similar sequence and in similar wording. But 35% of of Luke is only found in Luke, giving it the most unique material of the Synoptic Gospels. Some of the most beloved stories and teachings of Jesus are only found in the Gospel of Luke, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the teaching on the cost of discipleship and that suffering is not always linked to sin. Other unique material in Luke includes a, much of the birth and infancy narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus, the account of bringing to life the widow's son of Nain, Mary and Martha and their debate on service and worship, the ten lepers that were healed but the only one that returns, the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and Jesus' resurrection appearance on the road to Emmaus. Approximately 41% of the book of Luke is seen together, is found in the book of Mark, and 23% of Luke is found in the book of Matthew. So in studying Luke, we'll actually be partially studying the book of Mark and Matthew as well. Now, all of this makes perfect sense and is logical because all three men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wrote from different places at different times, but all three wrote about the same person. All three wrote out of their own personalities, from their own perspectives, from, did their own research and interviewed uh, some of the same people, sharing some of the same resource and documents, but all of the men wrote their books from a different theological purpose in mind. They were not writing a biography of Jesus. The purpose of their books wasn't just to factually tell about the life of this person named Jesus. No, they wrote gospels, not biography. They wrote to tell us not just who Jesus was, but to spread his message, to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Savior had come that he had lived this perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, and that 
rising again, proved his works and words were true. Luke wrote his book to tell of the message of Jesus. Most commentaries see Luke 19.10 as the theme verse of the book of Luke. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Last week we were given a great message by Pastor Ron Starcher on the inspiration and the inerrancy of our Bibles. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God himself breathed out our scriptures. They're 100% accurate, 100% true, 100% reliable, and 100% authoritative. He gave us his words for a reason, so that we might be complete, so that we might be whole, so that we may be equipped to do every good work for him, so that we might know him and give our lives to him. Peter talks about how God brought about this divine inspiration of the Bible. Listen closely to these remarkable words from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21. through 21. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Powerful words. Let's think about them for just a moment. Peter is saying that he's not following some cleverly devised myths. He's not teaching some made-up story. No, he saw it with his own eyes. He was there when it happened. The facts of Jesus' life are verifiable. Then he describes perhaps the greatest spiritual experience that any person on earth has ever had. He and James and John were on that great mount of transfiguration when Jesus was revealed in all of his divine glory and a voice from heaven proclaimed, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter was right there. He saw Jesus revealed. He heard the voice of God from heaven. How amazingly awesome is that? But he doesn't say, Hey, aren't I special? I've had this experience that you can never have. I have the secret knowledge of God that you will never have. If only you could experience what I experience. No, Peter doesn't say that. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. What's Peter saying here? Peter's saying that the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, is more fully conformed, is more spectacularly amazing and important 
than the greatest human spiritual experience ever. Why does he say that? Because no prophecy of the scripture came solely from the writer's mind. No scripture has their origin in men. No part of the Bible is just one guy's interpretation of events. No, the Bible is the very words of God because God said men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible from cover to cover is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a divine book from a divine author. The Holy Spirit carried along the writers of the scripture, superintending their words so that what they wrote, using their own personalities, using their own situations and their own events, what they wrote were the very words of God, the breathed out words of God. The Holy Spirit supernaturally carried along these writers so that we could have an inspired, an inerrant, an infallible word of God. Spiritual experiences aren't our ultimate guide. The Holy Spirit is our ultimate guide to the book that he authored for us. Folks, do you want to have a mountaintop experience with God? Do you want to experience God in a new and fresh and real and life-changing way? You can have it. The guide is on your lap. It's available to you through the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Since we study the Gospel of Luke, we'll, we'll take some precious time in those words written in red, the very words of our Lord. So we need to open up our hearts and our minds and our souls and our attitudes, our thoughts, our thinking, our whole lives to experience God in a new and fresh and life-changing way. We have not met this morning to look at a book full of Hebrew myths and legends. No, we have met this morning to engage the very words of God, the very words of the creator of all things, the very words of the Savior of our soul. How awesome is that? Well, now let's look at our first point this morning. Luke was a skilled writer. When we think of the great writers of the New Testament, often our thoughts go to Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Or perhaps to the Apostle John, who wrote five books of the New Testament. But did you know that Luke, in sheer volume, wrote the most in the New Testament? You see, Luke is a writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They're actually a two-volume set. Luke's books, the Gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts, actually make him the writer of the greatest amount of words in the New Testament. What a God-ordained blessing to each of us to have such a skilled writer and historian pen so much of the New Testament. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Sir William Ramsey was a well-known archaeologist and historian. He was a professor of humanities at Aberdeen University. He was considered to be one of the world's most eminent scholars on Asia Minor and its geography and history. He read the book of Acts, and this is what he said. The book of Acts is a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of primitive Christianity. In essence, he was saying, of my knowledge of history, I have no respect for Luke as a historian. Then he went to the Middle East for the express purpose of proving the Bible wrong in its history. Then he came back and he wrote a book called Luke, the Beloved Physician, in which he proclaimed, Dr. Luke, 
to be one of the foremost historians. Here's a quote from his book from Sir William Ramsey. This after looking carefully at all the evidence, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the harshest treatment. There are two reasons why this is true. One is that Luke was a scholarly man who worked diligent and hard to research and use correct and accurate information. But we know from from the beginning of our sermon here that Luke's accuracy was also because he wasn't just writing history. He was writing God-ordained scripture and was being carried along by the Holy Spirit to accurately and fully express the very words of God. So let's take a moment this morning and look at how Luke starts his gospel. He gives us such a great introduction. So turn in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. And we'll just look at this introduction uh, that Luke has written. Luke 1, 1 through 4. In as much as you have undertaken, as in, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the words have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This four-verse introduction to the Gospel of Luke is one long carefully constructed sentence that follows the traditions of its time for historical works. One commentator said it was customary among uh, great Greek and Hellenistic historians, including the first century Jewish writer Josephus, to explain and justify their works in the preface. I think Luke starts off his gospel this way for three reasons. We know from Colossians 4.14 that Luke was a trained physician. He was schooled and a learned man. He had studied and read various types of literature. And when he sat down to write the Gospel of Luke, it was his goal, it was his ambition to write an accurate history of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And by starting out his Gospel with this customary opening of a historian, he wanted to tell the world that he was writing history. Luke says, it seems good to me also having followed all things closely for some times past to write an orderly account for you. He wanted his writing not just to be judged as teaching the message of Jesus, but he wanted to make sure that those reading it that knew that these events and all of the facts of each of these events were history, that they actually happened. He had done the hard work of a historian with research and interviews. He also starts as Book this way, I think, because he's Greek. He's a Gentile convert to Christ. And in Colossians 4, 10 and 11, when Paul lists all those who are with them, calling them part of the circumcision. But Luke is not mentioned in that group. Rather, Luke is mentioned in verse 14 as the beloved physician. Luke, being a scholarly trained Greek, would have naturally wanted his writings to be read and studied by fellow scholarly trained Greeks. You know, Luke is the only Gentile writer in our New Testament. 
Luke also starts his book with this culturally typical introduction of a historian because of who he is writing it to. Verse 3 tells us specifically that he was writing to the most excellent Theophilus. Luke also addresses a second book, the book of Acts, to Theophilus. The identity of Theophilus is unknown. The name means friend of God or lover of God. And some have said that Luke is just using the name as a symbol for writing to all people who are friends of God or lovers of God. And surely Luke was writing to all people who are friends of God and lovers of God. But I think Theophilus was a real specific person. You see, Theophilus was a proper name at the time. And using the description most excellent was a way of describing a person of distinction and was often used of Roman government officials. Theophilus actually probably helped support Luke financially in the writing and in the distributing of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So Luke was a Gentile, a learned man, writing to a Gentile high official, and by extension to all Gentiles on a quest to learn about Jesus. So when, when Luke was thinking about his readers of his book, he was, you could say, thinking about us, Gentiles, on a quest to learn more about Jesus. This introduction also describes his process of writing his book. Many accounts of the life of Jesus are, were being shared and were being written down. Most were true, I'm sure, but, but some were incomplete and perhaps embellished and inaccurate. It was Luke's desire to write an orderly account of the life and message of Jesus. So as verse 3 says, he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He specifically talks about two groups of people in verse 2 where he would have carefully interviewed and investigated. The eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word. See, the minister of the word probably refers to the apostles and the other church leaders. So the eyewitnesses and the minister of the words were first-hand witnesses of the facts of Jesus' life and ministry. When Luke wrote Jesus' life had not so long passed, but there were still hundreds and even thousands of eyewitnesses that could attest to the verifiable, historical accuracy of Jesus and his deeds and teachings. He's kind of saying in this introduction to the first readers of the books, if you want to check out if what I am writing is accurate, then check it out for yourself. Just ask the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word yourself, and you will find out that what I am writing is accurate, true history. The introduction not only shows us Luke's desire to write an accurate history of the life teachings and the life and teaching of Jesus, it also tells us his theological purpose in his writing. See, Luke is not writing a history book that contains theology. He's writing a theology book that contains 100% history. Did you get that? See, Luke's not writing a history book. He's writing a theology book that contains 100% accurate history. He states his purpose in writing the gospel in verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Folks, as we study the Gospel of Luke, may we know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. What Luke is saying is that the story of Jesus, his miraculous birth, his amazing miracles, his life-changing, earth-shattering teaching, his cruel and substitutionary death, his, his amazing, powerful resurrections are all facts that can be known with certainty. These are not 
you know, the spiritual truths that, that just change our everyday lives, but, but they are facts that can be known with certainty. They actually happen. Folks, we stand here some 2,000 years later, walking by faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark faith. It's not based on the spiritual musings of some mystical fantasy. No, our faith is based on historical, verifiable fact. There was a man named Jesus, and he walked on this planet. And he actually said the very things he said. He actually did the very things he did. The Bible tells us what he said and did. As John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't stand on imagination. We don't stand on myth or legend or fairy tale. We stand on the truth. The 100% accurate, 100% authoritative Word of God. We have a Bible that was breathed out, the very breath of God. We have a Bible that is more fully confirmed to us than any earthly spiritual experience you could ever have. Because the Bible from cover to cover is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a divine book from a divine author. And we do well to pay attention to it. So the question for us is, how are we living out this reality that the Bible is God's intimate communication to us? Most everyone in here would raise their hand and say with me, loudly proclaiming, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. 100% accurate, 100% authoritative in my life. But are we actually living our lives that way? Is the Bible our first and primary source for guiding and directing the decisions and the actions of our lives? We say we believe it, but do we live it? One of the great things about our God is that he's always ready to help us change. He is the God of the second chances over and over and over again. So today, perhaps today, this is the commitment you need to make from the sermon, that you're going to put your belief into action. You're going to put your belief that the Bible is God's word, and you're going to take that into action, and you're going to make a new priority in your life to seek first God's kingdom. And use his word as your guide. Well, now I want to take a brief look at the only three passages in the Bible that mention Luke by name. The first one we're going to look at this morning is in the book of Philemon. Uh, Philemon 1, verses 23 and 24. Now, Philemon is a very short letter, one chapter, written by Paul to Philemon about Philemon's servant, Onesimus. It's right before the book of Hebrews. That's the easy thing. You find Hebrews, then you just go back a page and you'll find Philemon. It says in Philemon that Luke was a fellow laborer. Philemon says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. As we know, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor by trade but a servant of God by calling. See, the priority of his life wasn't his profession as a doctor. It was his confession of Christ as his Savior. 
That gives us another great application point this morning. Are you more defined in your life by your profession or your confession? Are you finding your purpose in life through your occupation or through God's calling of Christ in your life? Is Jesus the goal of your life? Is that more important to you? Are your own goals the most important goals of your life? See, Luke found the greatest meaning and purpose in his life by serving Jesus Christ, by being a fellow laborer for Christ. Though Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, his name never appears in either of those books. Because, see, the point of those books has nothing to do with the writer. It has all to do with what he's writing about, Jesus and his church. You see, when we are fellow laborers in Christ, the point isn't who gets the recognition. The goal is only to serve together for Jesus Christ and to give him all the glory. I once heard a faithful administrator at uh, Cedarville College say, at his retirement when I was there, uh, for over 30 years of service to the school, one of the unsung fellow laborers that helped make Cedarville such a great institution, he said, you can get a lot done if you don't care who gets the credit. You can get a lot done if you don't care who gets the credit. That's the heart of a fellow laborer. In the book of Acts, there are what is called we passages. This is where the author of the book of Acts is not just reporting what's happened, but he's actually there firsthand experiencing what is happening. Notice that they are we passages and not I passages. See, Luke was a co-laborer focused on the ministry opportunities at hand. In Acts 16 and 20 and 21 and 27 and 28, Luke is in the midst of the action in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, Luke is in Philippi when Paul first goes west following that Macedonian call and establishes the church there in Philippi. And Luke is there to witness Paul's brutal beating and imprisonment in Philippi. And I'm sure to nurse his wounds. In Acts 20, Luke is with Paul as he starts his journey from Philippi towards Jerusalem. Then they stop at Troas. And Luke witnesses Paul raising this young man, Eutychus, from the dead who had fallen out a window late at night during the preaching of Paul. In Acts 21, Luke is there supporting Paul when he arrives in Jerusalem on his God-ordained mission that would lead to his imprisonment. In Acts 27 and 28, Luke is there with Paul when he travels, you know, by ship to Rome. Luke is there with Paul when he is shipwrecked and he's stranded at sea. He's there with Paul all the way to Rome in his final imprisonment. Then the book of Acts ends. But tradition holds that Luke was there with Paul all the way until his martyrdom in the late 60s by Nero in Rome. It says that Luke was the one who recovered the dead body of his friend, Paul. How much of a ministry of the Apostle Paul do we have because of the support, the help, the encouragement of a fellow laborer named Luke? You know, behind every great apostle are amazing co-laborers that made their work possible. You can get a lot of work done when you don't care about who gets the credit. I think that's why we are told by Paul that Luke was his beloved. There in Colossians 4.14, it's Luke 
Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. He was a true friend. He was a real friend. Luke was one of Paul's closest friends. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times. Proverbs 18.24 says, There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That was Luke to Paul. The encourager that he needed when he was down. The confronter that he needed when he was going off base. The servant that he needed when his strength was weak. The friend that he needed when the loneliness was creeping in. The physician that he needed when he was beaten and ill. We will only find out in heaven how much of Luke's great ministry was made possible by the committed, beloved friendship of Luke. Well, the last mention of Luke in the Bible that we'll talk about today there is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Luke was loyal. Paul is writing to Timothy just shortly before his martyrdom, and he says in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crestians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. The powerful words. Luke alone is with me. Both words of loneliness and words of support. Paul's been abandoned. Others have gone on to different ministry places. But Paul is not alone. His beloved companion, his friend Luke, is with him. Luke was brave and faithful and committed and loyal to the very end. You've heard it said it is much easier to start a race than to finish it. Well, Paul finished his race, but not without help, not without encouragement, not without the love of his dear friend Luke. So how are you doing in finishing your race? Have you started your race with, with Christ? How are you doing now? Is, it, is your race going stronger and stronger and stronger? Are you slowing down? Is it getting hard? Have you pulled off to the side in your spiritual life? Are you stopped? Perhaps you're in a hard time and you need a friend. Reach out to those believers around you who can be Luke to you, who can be an encouragement and a help and a love to you. How about you? Are you a friend like Luke? Don't you want to be a friend like Luke? Are you focused on yourself that, that you're not looking around to help others? Are you looking to lead and get all the credit when God's calling you to be a fellow laborer? Are you looking to give up when God is calling you to be a fellow laborer? There's a friend for all of us that sticks closer than a brother. There's a beloved friend who loves so much that he laid down his life for us. On this day, let's redouble our efforts to get to know our greatest friend through his amazing, inspired Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this endeavor that we embark on today. The Gospel of Luke. We thank you so much for your word. It's powerful. It's real. It's accurate. It's poignant. It challenges us. It convicts us. It comforts us. It moves us on in our spiritual life so that we could be more conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ, our friend, our Savior. We thank you for that. We thank you for this man, Luke, who you used in such amazing, mighty ways. 
Lord, we pray that we would be vessels in your hands to be used. Not worried about who gets the credit. Not worried about if our name appears on anything. But worried that Jesus Christ gets the glory. That Jesus Christ's name appears on everything. That Jesus is the one. So Lord, embolden us as friends to one another. Lord, we've got a great church and we love each other. Help us to to reach out to each other in in new ways and in bold ways. uh, To to love each other in in ways that are substantive and helpful. Because life is hard. So we thank you for each other. We thank you for your word and we thank you for our Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.